Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered, a something a little bit different for you guys today. I have Greg Lugianos here. He is the author. Hi, Greg. He is the author of The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution co-written with uh, Ricky Schlott. And he's author of many books, a lawyer. He works for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And he does a bunch of good work suing people. It's good stuff. And expression now. uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we're the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression as of June 6, 2022, because we realized we couldn't save campus without saving the rest of the country. (laughs) No, I appreciate the broadening of this goal because it does flow into everything. And that's part of what uh, this book is about. I, I sometimes joke. So I, Guy Benson and I wrote End of Discussion in 2015. I remember. Which was on a similar, on this on this subject and dealt with many of the, the things you guys are dealing with. And I always joke that it's bad for the country, but great for the book that this continues to be an issue. And it's all worth an update once every year or two years, which is partly what we have with the canceling of the American mind. Can you tell me a little bit about the concept for this book and writing it with Ricky and how you guys came together? Sure. So, so you know, it's playing off my previous book with Jonathan Haidt, Coddling of the American Mind. I promised my staff I wasn't going to write another book for a while because they're all consuming and I'm, I'm a psychological wreck when I'm writing one. And my uh, co-author in this case is a Gen Z young woman, absolutely brilliant. She's only 23 now, but I met her when she was 20. She became a fellow at FIRE. And the idea was, oh, wow. So we wrote this book. Me and Height wrote this book that talked a lot about Generation Z, about like how, and particularly Gen Z young women, and how we think we're creating a sort of psychological crisis for them, but by more or less giving them constant affirmation of terrible psychological ideas that will make them anxious and depressed. So I, we thought kind of like, you know what, now that I have this fellow working for FIRE, she, she became a, a, a junior fellow at, at FIRE who uh, we, we, we write really well together because I'm an overwriter and she's very good at boiling stuff down and making it terse and readable and understandable, that we do a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind with a little bit of a Gen Z young woman's perspective because, you know, I'm Gen X. Height says he's Gen X too. I think he's poor boomer, but, you know, that, that's, that, that's neither here nor there. Right. So, but as we were getting ready to do it, Mary Catherine, I was, I was like, holy there are still people out there who are saying cancel culture didn't even happen or was a hoax or was or a creation of Fox News. And I'm like, I'm sitting on all this data and all like and, and, and I watched this happen on campus and it wasn't just it was horrifying. Like, like it was a terrifying period that professors were and it continues to happen. But particularly 2020 and 2021, the scale of professors losing their jobs for th- saying things that were often quite tame was unlike anything we've seen, period. So we decided to, you know what, Let, let's make the follow-up to Coddling the American Mind something much more specifically about cancel culture. And so we, we set out to do th- uh, three things. One, show that it's real, which seems ridiculous, so we'd have to do it, but also show the data at, and make the point that it's happening at a, at a historic scale that matches up with other mass censorship incidents in American history. Two, get people to rethink it a little bit so they actually start to understand it as being just the meanest part of a way of winning arguments without actually convincing anybody without, as we say, winning arguments without winning arguments. And then part three is our attempt to begin to offer potential solutions. We, we don't spend a third of the book talking about it because we think the solution to cancel culture is easy. We actually think it's incredibly challenging and difficult. And we know that our suggestions in the book are just a, are, are just a beginning. So that's how it happened. I felt very lucky to be blessed by two amazing co-authors. Height was a real pleasure to work with, and, and so was Ricky. 
Well, and as a grandma millennial, I'm like the oldest possible millennial there is. I'm like sort of bridging the gap between you guys. It's like height can be on one end. I can be right in between you guys. Choose Gen X. We're the best. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually sometimes feel like I spiritually identify with Gen X. But, but yeah, so I wanted to offer the definition that you guys offer because I think it's helpful because there a lot of people who listen to this podcast will certainly agree that cancel culture is a real saying. They are convinced of this. Yep. However, I think it is important to have the data at hand and right. to have thought through this because you're going to meet up with people who are going to say, well, Greg wrote a book. Clearly, there's no problem. So, <laughs> Right, so, exactly. Right, he, nobody threw him in jail and didn't allow him to publicize <laughs> it. So I don't see what Isn't he still alive? Yes, it's totally fine. So the, the definition you guys give is the uptick beginning around 2014 and accelerating, accelerating in 2017 and after of campaigns to get people fired, disinvited, deplatformed, or otherwise punished for speech that is or would be protected by First Amendment standards in the climate of fear and conformity that has resulted from this uptick. To my mind, it is inarguable that this exists, that the locus for it is campuses, and that it has spread far beyond that. One of the reasons we decided to write into discussion is because we saw this uptick in organizing to deplatform people and in it trickling down to just regular people and yes. students who aren't able to express themselves. So tell me about some of the data that you found was most important, because I think that's it's really helpful to have this on hand yep. to, again, counter this idea of the gaslighting that this thing doesn't exist. So tell me what were some of the the highlights of that? For uh, you guys. Chapter one, by the way, is gaslighting of the American mind, because, you know, stuck with a formula, might as well use it. But basically, like it was the, the complete Internet freak out when The New York Times came out with very clear data showing cancel culture is real and Americans are afraid of it. Because even the New York Times, you know, like uh, currently there's a there's a scholar out there who's referring to the New York Times as either being a dupe or or itself neo-Confederates. Uh, sure. right, calling them right wing wasn't enough, by the way. So apparently they're neo-Confederates now for saying that cancel culture was real. God, God knows what I should be. So the data, and it's important to keep in mind, like I always, you always have context first. I started right around 9-11. 9-11 was a bad time for free speech and academic freedom. And about 17 professors were targeted. More than a dozen. That's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and and 9-11, I'm talking about from 9-11 to like basically the five years after, including the Iraq war, professors who were targeted for speech related to that. And more than a dozen, almost two dozen, you know, targeted. About three were fired. All three, though, were fired for justifications beyond academic freedom, free speech. One, gross academic misconduct, were Churchill, okay. and he did it. Two, the Samuel Arian, who was originally, they want, they, they tried to fire him for his speech, fire objected, so they couldn't. And then they just fired him for actual extensive ties to international terrorism. Right. And three, a case in which a professor of a technical writing class spent a lot of her class talking about her opinions on the Iraq war instead of teaching technical writing, which, you know, actually you can fire. Right. Yeah. So bad period, Three, 17 professors targeted, possibly none actually fired because firing professors, in my experience, was actually very rare and almost never for for um, tenured professors. Cancel culture is over a thousand professors that we know of, you, you know, targeted uh, by uh, oftentimes by students, unfortunately, and administrators, sometimes professors signing letters against them for their academic freedom, to be clear, for, for their free speech, academic freedom, teaching things related to their expression that tenure, for example, is supposed to uh, protect. Two-thirds of them punished, T almost 200 of them fired, wow. over 40 of them tenured, 40. I mean, that's that, that, that's infinitely, literally more than I'd seen in earlier parts of my career because I'd seen none. I didn't know it was possible. 
And we also know this is a wild undercount because why? Because one in six professors say that they have been either threatened with a, with a punishment for their academic freedom or free speech. And almost 9%, actually more than 9%, well, almost one in 10 students have been threatened with punishment for their speech as well, or investigated or actually investigated. And these are numbers that like, I tell, I remember saying this to some younger people like, oh, it's only 10%. I'm like, it's only 10% of like, that's like a million students. Are you, are you nuts? So the, the, the numbers are scary. And the only thing that you can really compare them to historically in terms of actual numbers of firings it, it is McCarthyism, right. which the standard estimate is about 63 professors fired for being communists. What was the number at the time? About 100 fired over overall, according to the biggest right. Uh, survey done right, right towards the end of McCarthyism. And that's really bad. I want to be really clear. That's bad. But meanwhile, we're talking about twice that. And by the way, during McCarthyism, everyone knew it was happening. Whereas it's weird to have a period that's as, as crazy as cancel culture has been and still have people out there claiming this is just a hoax and, you know, writing academic papers, just claiming, oh, this is just an invention of Fox News. Right. Like a right wing moral panic is one of the uh, quotes from some uh, liberal professors. I think it's helpful. The Red Scare talking point or the McCarthyism in, in particular is helpful because it is a touchstone of the left to say, well, we know that was bad. Even even in our somewhat uh, eroded academic standards of today, most left of center people know McCarthyism bad, right? Yeah. So if you can tell them, <laughs> if you can tell them we're outdoing that by a factor of, a, you know, of, of some at this point in cancel culture, perhaps that speaks to this old classical liberalism that's buried somewhere in, in there. Is that something that you found in making that argument? This is the... It's been frustrating because like when, when I do kind of more left-leaning podcasts about this, right. they point out we have, we appropriately take it from both sides, Mary Catherine. And, you know, there was recently an article in Commentary talking about how we engage in both ciderism. There's like 20 something chapters in the book overall. We spend three of them talking about cancel culture from, from, from the right, which is real. Mm -hmm. That's why we talk about it. And we are principled people. But when you have three chapters on a much larger book, it, that means you're obviously you're, you're not saying that these are proportionate. We're saying that certainly on campus, council culture is much more a creature of the left. Um, when it comes to, at, at, and about only about, about one third of punishments though, of professors initially started from the right. There's something that we make the point. Now, to be clear, the firing is usually done by someone on the left because that's who runs universities. Right. But, but a lot of times they're, you know, they're, they're kind of moral panic started by reporters when a professor gets caught saying something that either is really offensive or is misrepresented as being offensive. We, we, we talk about a case at Babington College, Babson College by Ashin Fonzi who was written up as if he had he had been literally advising the Ayatollah about where to attack oh in the United gosh. States. And it actually, when you see the tweet, he's just cracking jokes about like, oh, you can attack cultural sites in the United States, like the Kardashian residence or the Mall of America. Like, it, it's clearly a joke. It's actually a slightly funny joke. No, I actually, that one was amazing to me because I, I missed that one. The, one of the things that's amazing about cancel culture and the fact that people say it's not real is that I'm actually very interested in this subject. Mm -hmm. And I frequently miss stories because they're happening constantly and yes, that means there's a too, bunch of too damn bunch, many of them there's a bunch of stories that are happening that we're never hearing about mm -hmm. for each of these and that one is wild because the fake facebook post is a private facebook post correct yeah that is very clearly a joke if you think the joke is in bad taste fine but like it is very clearly a satirical statement yeah and, and it got written up as if he was really doing it and, and, the, and the professor was fired which is just nuts 
but meanwhile, so like, you know, we're, we're taking some, some flack from the right for both siderism when it's kind of like, well, no, we're actually pretty clear that, that, you know, on campus, it tends to much more come from the left. And among students, it was almost entirely, you know, from the right. left. When we looked at corporations, very much more from the left. But when I, you know, go on kind of left-leaning podcasts, it's entirely fixated on, you know, the threats from the right. And, and, and it's like banging your head against the wall, trying to get people to like, no, no, seriously. And cause I, I hate to say this, America, but I still consider myself left of center. Yeah. And the thing, the thing I, I, I keep I keep on, you know, explaining, like, can't we just admit there's a problem on our side? And and I feel like there's there's an easy out for those of us. It's like, yeah, it's the liberals versus the progressives. <laughs> yeah. You know, more or less, like they they have different ideas than like uh, Gen X era liberals who actually like free speech and actually like don't uh, are a little suspicious of concentration uh, of power. So yeah, we, we, we've been taking a uh, a a a, un, a a fully expected amount of flack from from in this case genuinely both sides since the book came. Yeah, well, I think that's a that's a mark in your favor. And I I attempt one of the reasons I like to follow what fires up to is because it will sometimes fill in the gaps in my news knowledge by bringing to my attention things from the right that I hadn't seen, for instance, right. And I do want to be consistent on free speech, and it's one of it's very hard to be. It's very yeah. hard. Like you have to ask. Nobody, want, nobody wants you to be. Right. <laughs> and you and you do have to ask a certain or sort of discipline of yourself and say, mm -hmm. okay, even when the guys that I don't like and the ideas that I don't like are be, are the ones being gone after, that's not working for me. The so I, I was reading. I read the 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 chapters on the right, obviously, and about uh, one thing that strikes me there is that a lot of these attempts are legislative, mm -hmm. right? So they're they are more than a cultural push. Now, I am sympathetic to some of the desires sure. of the people legislating because I'm looking at K through 12 curriculum and going, well, I have kids who I'd like to really make a stink about what they're learning over in these schools, which has you know, been a detriment to history and civics education and and means they're not reading and means they're not doing all these other things. But what it's interesting because they're trying to find the line to walk there is like, I want to voice my opinion. I want things to change. K through 12 seems like an area we can work on that. But yeah. there's there's ways to do it and there's ways that are that are chilling of speech. So what well, is your thought on that? Well, when it comes to K through 12 curriculum, you know, that's absolutely appropriately, you know, a decision made by the state. I mean, Mike, by the way, I have a five and a seven year old. They go, they go to public school and I see some of the people complaining about some of these laws, like the, what are called divisive concepts or anti-CRT laws. I surely have my issues with them as well. But at the same time, from talking to some of the you know biggest critics of these, you would think that they just discovered that K through 12 curriculum is a political issue sometimes. And it's like, no, it's always been a political issue. And the scariest response that I've seen is essentially saying, and, and, and this is one of the things that got the governor of Virginia tossed out, was saying that, oh, we should completely defer to education school graduates in what my kids are learning without input from. No, from, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, no, 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 no. And basically, and there's there's a way to get out of this trap, by the way. Mm -hmm. Don't make a, a pub, public education, either don't publicly fund it or make it mandatory. But once it's publicly funded, mandatory, and for your own children, it's the idea that you couldn't have any say in it is, is nuts. Where you get into some of more, like more of the issues from the legislatures, that comes from when they actually try to affect higher education curriculum. Okay. Now, now, this is an interesting one, Mary Catherine, because if you look at the response to that, there's this amazing article by this respected scholar na name, named Mary, Marianne Franks. Okay. And she's the one who, who labels people who believe cancel culture are real as neo-Confederates. 
because apparently calling us right wing wasn't wasn't yeah you got to take it to the next level yeah exactly it's like oh well I guess you weren't listening when I said this uh, this terrible word she's the one who like she's one of the many people who t- talks about it entirely being a creation of Fox News and the uh, and one of the you know things in it is that it's it's focused on the legislative attempts to rein in higher education and it's like yeah okay let's talk about that the stop woke act the stop woke act was passed in florida versions of it were attempted to pass all over the country and what it does is it limits the ability to talk about certain subjects in class and as far as like what it actually meant when the state of florida had to go in and defend the stop woke act in florida they literally had to argue that under this law you could argue against affirmative action in class but you couldn't argue for it and pretty much as soon as they argued that it's like you've lost the case that's that's viewpoint that's viewpoint discrimination Discrimination, exactly like the 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 biggest constant the biggest sin of of, the first amendment is viewpoint discrimination so like we warned them it was unconstitutional before it passed they passed it anyway we we challenged in court so did the aclu in a separate lawsuit we of course defeated it and now it's up for up on appeal and i think we're going to defeat it again i mean the opinion against it was very strong Right. So one law has been passed against a uh, curriculum. And so far, it's been defeated. And that is more or less a justification for this massive Orwellian attack against higher education that allows as one of the reasons why, like me and Chris Rufo get along very well, is because I think that derailed the entire higher education reform movement because it, right. it took a lot of people who care about fixing it, including me. And suddenly made it about something that was beyond the power of the state to do and a, and a, right. and a, and a foolish uh, law. But that was also enough fire for enough for people like, you know, Michael Barabay, Jennifer Ruth and, and Franks to argue that, that it's just attacks from the right. And meanwhile, kind of like like you were saying, it's funny that, you know, fire defends the right to teach critical race theory. But I think any time someone mentions critical race theory, the very first thing a free speech advocate could say should say is, by the way, the very first thing that the, the founders of CRT did when they got together, including people like Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, and eventually people including Kimberly Crenshaw, advocated for limitations on freedom of speech. So Words That Wound was originally published in 1980. The book about it came out in 1994. But this was used as a justification for the passage of speech codes during what I call the first great age of political correctness. And that's, you know, that's worthy of criticism for sure. Right. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm definitely wary of, of many of these laws that seem vague and could certainly cause chilling, particularly, like you said, when you get to the college area and no matter how dumb I think these colleges are frequently, it's outside the scope of the government. Yep. My my take for especially in like sort of dealing with my kids and what I want to fight for is is, you know, age limits and appropriateness of conduct and K through twelve curriculum are two areas where it's safe to be having a lot of say in this. And mm-hmm. you don't get to tell me that I'm a hypocrite because I'm speaking at a, a school board meeting about those subjects. Yeah, and we and we did a, a FAQ about this. And I, I, it was another thing that people went after us for as if our position was, there's no age appropriateness argument in the selection of books for kids. And it's like, no, that's nonsense. Like the, the, the standard for the most part comes out of an opinion that, you know, it's kind of a weak opinion called, called Pico from 1983 that I that I think if the current court were to revisit it, it didn't even have a, a, a majority opinion. Um, right. But but basically the, the the takeaway from it is if a legislature decides to get rid of a book only because of the viewpoint that that produces some First Amendment problems to get rid of a book from a, from a, even from a K through 12 library. But it entirely leaves open the idea that kind of like if your argument is that this is age inappropriate. 
you know, like that's completely different. And Joe Cohn, who is our, our legislative chief at FIRE, he, he wrote an article basically making the argument that we should have due process for this, you know, more or less like something that involves parents, that involves librarians, you know, discussing things like age appropriateness. What is a problem for us, though, is when someone, when a library, and this has happened in a number, number of cases, where they decide that a book isn't age appropriate and they, or, or the legislature decides it isn't age appropriate, and they, it gets completely removed from the library as opposed to just put in the adult section. Right. Like that, that bugs us when cops show up, which has happened several times that we don't like that. So it's definitely one of those sections where a lot of the nuance that people don't think we actually have on this, actually like check out our, our, our FAQ on this. It, right. it, it, it's much more thoughtful than well, I think. And, we... and whether you agree with the specific lines or not, it's nice to read through the nuances and think through it with this book. I just want to ask you a little bit about the the history of all this, because one of the things sure. that strikes me and that, that makes me sad about the state of things at the moment is that, you know, it's a great irony that the free speech movement was, of course, a left sort of even radical movement on America's college campuses. I happen to agree with a lot of their thoughts, it turns yep. out, as a right-leaning woman in America in 2023. But they gained not only cultural purchase for the idea, but a lot of legal victories in that time after the 60s. And so much of that has been squandered, not the legal part, because we still have those protections, but the cultural understanding part has really been lost to a great degree. I was struck by, I don't know if you saw the video of, there was a there was a person tearing down kidnapped posters That's... of Israelis in New York and a construction worker who is probably Gen X or a little older. I, I did see that. Yeah. Profanely explains to this person, you can put up your own posters, but you don't get <laughs> right. to rip down these posters. And I thought that guy's giving a better explication of how free speech works than most college administrators could right now. Yep. And I do worry that so much that was built into the American psyche and education and sort of ethos has been lost in the last generation. Yeah. And you should be even more worried, Mary. Oh, great. <laughs> because one of the things that makes me kind of more eager to see us take advantage of this kind of moment where there's a lot of rightful shock at the state of higher education is because the younger cohort of, of professors are more hostile to free speech, they're more politically homogenous. So like the, uh, the, the, the future is, is troubling to us. Like, and this is research that we've looked at at the fire.org. And we're like, I don't really know, you know, what, what, what exactly to do with that. If basically you're going to have an environment where they argued free speech when they, when they needed it, and then they kind of closed the door behind them. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. There are, you know, there are certainly great uh, professors out there who are great on free speech and academic freedom. There well, are there even... are even efforts and, and, and sort of publications by higher institutions having seen these problems to say like, whoa, University of Chicago, this is what we actually believe, yeah. right? Exactly. D Dartmouth has actually been really impressing me lately on what uh, on the fact that it's doing the impossible, which is actually having people on different sides of Israel-Palestine talking to each other, which which a lot of schools have just been too terrified to even try. Thankfully, they were actually trying it long before. Right. It, you always want to set these things in motion before a crisis. Before this happens, yes. And but when it comes to kind of the erosion of appreciation for free speech, this is something that we call in the book, the slow motion train wreck, because it wasn't like we didn't see this coming. When I, when I was interning at the ACLU back in 99, I was already in an environment at Stanford Law School where you weren't the cool kids if you went to do uh, free speech law. I was kind of lectured on how defending free speech was 
quote unquote paternalistic by a professor there because it meant that you weren't carrying out the people's will on what should be banned. And I was like, okay, mm, okay. that's a, that's a, that's, that, 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 that took a lot of IQ to, to come up with an argument that bad. And, but you could see that since it had already eroded so much in sort of like my first experience with like truly kind of like elite higher education, which is definitely a, a weird experience, but you know, fun in some ways too. You know, Stanford's, it's like a, it's like a giant spa. But you could see that, that the sort of like lefty agreement that free speech was good was already kind of dying. And I experienced this a lot, even in like the circles I used to go to Burning Man with, you know, like, like that, that it was like, really, this is no longer like, you, you do know that like, and I would just, I would jokingly say, it's like, you know, without the first amendment, people would burn San Francisco down, you know, like I didn't mean that literally, but basically like it was a city that really relied on, on, on the first amendment. And so this has been a long time coming. And there, but it's also important to point out there was a very intentional effort to change the political valence of free speech. And it's winning that, that essentially the younger generation that, you know, the first thing they hear when they hear free speech is, oh, hate speech. You know, hate speech isn't free speech. It's like, well, no, actually, there is actually, no. Incorrect. Yeah, there, there is no hate speech exception. They look to Europe, you know, for with admiration. I'm like, OK, you do understand that almost 4,000 people were arrested in 2016 for offensive internet comments in the UK. You are seeing what's happening in France right now. And by the way, like they passed anti-Semitism laws in the 90s and that right. eh, didn't really seem to help very much. I, I say that. With, are, are you uh, telling me anti-Semitism is ineffectively banned in France? Yes. Well, but the thing is I have to explain this to people. I'm like, they, they think censorship is a sophisticated idea. And I'm kind of like, Dude, you just told the anti-Semites that they can only talk to other anti-Semites because obviously you didn't change their point of view. So what are they going to do? They're going to talk to people who are safe to talk to. And guess who that is? Other anti-Semites. And guess what the social science says on that? They're going to get a lot more anti-Semitic if those are the only people they're talking to. And voila, France. Yeah, you talk about this a little bit in the canceling of the American mind about how different platforms explode in usership and and different user forums will explode once there is a banning or a shadow banning sort of moment on Twitter or one of the mainstream social media pages. So people get driven into their yep. further into silos. Yeah, that, this was one, one of the cooler bits of data in the book. And we got some interesting stuff from the National Contagion Research Institute about how People being kicked off of Twitter and and then going to Gab led to greater radicalization, which is completely predictable in the, in the social science, by the way. But it, it's one of those it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, like the discomfort is having to be on on a social media platform with people who have abhorrent beliefs. But I always point out it's kind of like the secret, the least appreciated value of freedom of speech is simply having a better understanding of the world as it is, and that includes. And I, I always point this out because like. That the, people will take the truth justification for free speech in this stupid direction where they're basically kind of like, well, you know, we now know that objective truth is impossible to know. So therefore, free speech is, is no longer justified. And then they just replace it with whatever view they have. It's like, no, let's put it this way. Lizard people who live under the Denver airport do not control the world. Right. That's not true. If your girlfriend or, or uncle or, or potential hire believes that lizard people living on the Denver airport control the world. That's a really important fact to know. And if that's a popular theory in the country, it's really important for you to know that because it's not like it's like so like conspiracy theories move the world and it's important to know about them. And there's this kind of naive thought that if well, if I didn't know that, what 
you'd be safer from it. No, you'd yeah. be less safe from it. So I find myself sometimes particularly in arguing against the methods that the government used to shut down some of the COVID information saying, and some of these things were very obviously true. We now know in hindsight sure. and even knew at the time, but I also don't want to argue that you only shouldn't censor true stuff because you should also not censor lies or jokes or exaggerations. And in fact, figuring out the truth requires that you have all of those things so that you can sort through them. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's something that we, we talk about the case of Jennifer Say, and she was someone who lost her job at Levi's for arguing this crazy idea that sh shutting down in-person schooling would be really damaging to, to, to kids and particularly damaging to poor and minority kids, which, of course, is kind of accepted now uh, mm -hmm. by kind of everybody. But she got canceled hardcore for this. She was called a Very racist yeah. for some reason. Like, like basically, like they went after her and she was, you know, forced out of Levi's. But I always make the point that the fact that she was right just makes it all that much more horrifying. Yes. It doesn't make it any more protective or, or more. You should be able to 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 to, to give theories about what you think the world actually looks like right. and how much damage the expert class did to itself by having this unrealistic, absolutely see-through level of certainty that was implausible. And and I remember this, I have you know, some of my friends, you know, that, that I, I went to law school with, when it came to the lab leak theory, you know, when someone started saying, well, you know, there is a, there is a virology lab right there in Wuhan, maybe that this leaked out or, and coming back immediately with absolute, as if it was absolutely certain that there's no way that can be true. We totally know that this is, this actually came from the wet market. And I'm like, but do on. you? Yeah. yeah like, so there was a big, you know, study there that, that, that we, there were the international viewers were allowed to come in and do a massive survey of what actually happened down there and do a great report and all the research The China let, let that happen. We all knew that didn't happen. So it's kind of like, no, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I know that you don't know that. One of the things that's daunting about being a free speech enthusiast is that is that in watching sort of the discourse, it strikes me that sort of the art of thinking is being lost. The art of conversation is being lost. It's, it's supplanted, as uh, you, you note, in some cases by emotional thinking, sort of just trusting whatever feeling you have. There's and this I've seen this in cable news frequently where there's a demand that I have a an emotional reaction to something even if i'm saying the same thing and basically agreeing with someone there would be this anger that i wasn't angry enough about something that was happening which is like this bizarre need for emotional outlay in my rational arguments which i kind of rejected but this all sort of is driven by our natural tribalism human instinct it's fun to bully people if you can get them to shut up like you it ends up yeah. being fun to be powerful conformity pays it turns yeah. out and so how do you that's one thing that's discouraging. It's like to be the weirdo that doesn't go along with those things can become costly. It can become very uncomfortable. How do you battle that? None of it's easy. I mean, it, 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 battling this is what got me hospitalized back in 2007. Now, the upside of being suicidal and hospitalized in Philadelphia in a very dark chapter in my life, partially yeah. in, in no small part because if I was in the culture world day long and, you know, my, uh, my, because I, I, very much still live in a blue bubble, but it was even bluer back then. Right. And, you know, like she would 
love me when I defended liberals and hate me when I defended conservatives. Like my, my, my I'm talking about my girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. and my community, like, you know, sometimes conservatives want to punch me because I defended people who crack jokes about 9-11. And it just it just got exhausting. And you couldn't really trust people to be principled on this stuff. And it, and it really did wear me down. So believe me, nobody gets better than I do about how how exhausting it can be to actually defend this stuff. I think the reason why you should be somewhat optimistic about the future of free speech is that forums that allow for it and companies that allow for it are going to have big advantages over those that don't, at least in the long run. Unfortunately, there seems to be a lot of you know powerful people trying to sort of clamp down on that, basically with the age-old idea that the people can't really handle talking among themselves. They'll spread misinformation, disinformation, which sounds nice. But it completely leaves out the fact that truth is hard to know. Yes. And governments aren't generally in the practice of being that great at figuring it out. You don't say. Or not covering it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So J- Jonathan Rauch's book, 2020 book, 2021 book, The Constitution of Knowledge is excellent on this topic. Fourth Kindly Inquisitors is a, is a true classic. Truth is hard to know. And misinformation, disinformation, if you give the government the power to police that, that's the whole ballgame, because like th- that is a open door to any kind of censorship, and it tends to freeze in place the knowledge at any given time. So yeah, fighting for this stuff, it's it's worth fighting for. I do. We do make an argument, though, and I wish we we tried to hand hand in this book in about a year while both having very busy, you know, other lives. And one thing I did want to have a little bit more in that would would be that I think one of the things that can really point out the power of freedom of speech is trying to solve specific problems in a realistic way. And it's one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I like what Andrew Yang's trying to do it forward because he always brings up actual, what technical solution might actually help here. Like what, Mm -hmm. what well thought out, you know, intervention could actually help. And if you actually have that kind of discipline, and I think, I think you can have forums potentially for this, it gets you to out of the mindset that anyone who disagrees with me is stupid or evil. Let's figure out a way to solve it. And then disagreement shows how useful it is to be like, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that, 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 that actually won't work quite as well because thanks for bringing that up. But meanwhile, kind of like a lot of the ideology, particularly coming off campus, it's almost like designed to be hopeless. Like, like when I remember getting all of my friends together in 2003, 2003, all my Democrat friends to talk about, you know what we should refocus the party on? Energy policy, because like we can actually invest in big energy and this can lead to all these solutions and all this kind of stuff. And everybody kind of looked at me funny. But at the time, it wasn't treated as if I was saying blasphemy. It's kind of like right. when I talk about some of these other topics now, like when I talk about like, you know, nuclear and, and, and trying to speed up the speed up fusion and like, geoengineering and all this kind of stuff that that I think we really need to do if we take these issues seriously. It's treated a lot more like it's just taboo to talk about it. And it's just some kind of weird blasphemy because it doesn't, it has a semi-religious kind of problem that it runs into where it's kind of like, oh no, but human beings aren't, aren't, aren't being punished enough for it. We're not suffering enough under your, under your theory. And I'm like, well, good. That, that feels like it makes it harder to have a conversation. (laughs) No, there's a couple there's a couple points that you guys hit on that I that I want to ask you about because I, I think it might be unexpected to some people that they're in this book. One is one is about therapy and one is about uh, about parenting. So I'm you speak openly about your struggles with depression and the way the, the ways that you were able to be treated. And this is something I worry about a lot, particularly post pandemic, when I got the signal that a lot of medical professionals perhaps weren't thinking through these things in a non tribal and rational way that becomes problematic for people seeking help. 
yeah. if they feel that they are going to be disqualified as someone who deserves help from the yeah. people who are who are supposed to be oath held to help them. Yeah. Now, I talk about the most depressing chapter in the probably in the whole book is a chapter we wrote wrote about psychotherapy. And this easily could have been a, a book all by itself. And yeah. I think there is a book. There are maybe more than one that, that, that takes us on. And, you know, it, we since we we're trying to write something relatively fast, it had to be a little bit of an overview. And but I am lucky enough to know, uh, partially because of coddling the American mind, I know a lot of people in clinical psychology programs and the stories I'm that are getting back to me are horrifying. You know, classes, you know, really paralyzed to the thought of what if it turns out my patient is a what do I do then? And of course, the answer is you treat them with compassion, understanding non-judgment, you know, there's something about unconditional regard, I think, I think is one of the old terms in, 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 in psychoanalysis. And some of the stuff that I've, I've read since as well, you know, it, it, they're not just saying you might want to opt out of treating that person, which is horrifying, that you should lecture them more right. or less on correcting their point of view. And Camille Foster, you know, of the fifth column, he's also a member of the, of FIRE's board, you know, he's a he's black, and he while he was doing couples therapy with his wife, in the middle of one of them, his therapist starts explaining, "I think your problems here might might be due to internalized racism." Oh. And Camille Foster is the wrong person to say this to. Yes, um, correct. And, and he was like, and I think his response was very simply, "And I'm paying for this because I don't I don't buy into any of this stuff." And what's so scary about this, and I do have a chapter talking about a friend of mine who did kill himself after being canceled, is that I imagine what would happen if I showed up being completely exhausted by the culture war in 2007 and my shrink actually started lecturing me about, you know, how my lived experience could not actually be true because it didn't comport with his or her, you know, his or her values. And, I'm, and I can say, honestly, I'm not sure I'd still be around. Yeah. That columnist, by the way, was Mike Adams, who is a fellow North Carolinian. He might not have been a native North Carolinian, but he worked at UNC Wilmington. A really funny, sweet guy who wrote great counterculture in the academic world columns and was got a lot of flack for. And it turns out in the dark, the dark year of 2020 got a little too much and, and we lost him. You, there's, a, there's a point in, in the book where you explain where you guys are explaining how the left eliminates voices they should listen to. And you explain that the right does in a different way. It's much more efficient. The, the left is pretty <laughs> intricate. But one of the things that strikes me was this, this paragraph, and it, it applies to the therapy question, right? If you're eliminating all these people, it says, when laid on top of qualifications like politics or race, the sliver of palatable voices gets even smaller. 93% of the population is heterosexual or conservative. 98% is heterosexual or white. 98.9% is heterosexual or non-black. 99.1% is heterosexual, non-black, or conservative. Now we're down to just 0.9% of the population that's still worth listening to. <laughs> and if you apply that to areas where you're supposed to be helped contractually by people who are you're paying, it turns out badly for a lot of people. It's practically nobody. And and that's and the very next step after that establishing that 0.9% is surprise, none of it mattered. Because that actually turns out that if you're even if you're if you're a non-white trans person, if you have the wrong opinion, right. then you're accused of internalized trans transphobia. You're accused of internalized racism or misogyny. So it's per that's why we call it the perfect rhetorical fortress, because there's no way to win if someone decides to use, use these tactics. 
And the thing about that, it's great to have Coleman Hughes, the black independent, a young guy, freaking genius, trying to embarrass the rest of us by being so smart. <laughs> the, but he has a great quote in there. It's like, I'm constantly being told the most important thing about my opinion on certain topics is the color of my skin. But then when I have a dissenting opinion, I get told, I'm not really black. And, and, and he points out that that's perfect, that, that, that either way, like they don't, that they, they either confirm what they believe and don't have to listen to them. We asked, including people like John McWhorter, Wilfred Riley, basically Charles Love, all like all the black conservatives and moderate authors that we knew, like, have you been told you're not really black for an opinion? Every single Every one single of them one. Yeah. was like, yep, I've been told that. And, and, I've seen this in action. It's sometimes it's like privileged white people telling black people that their opinion doesn't matter because it doesn't match theirs and somehow still think that they're somehow right. progressive. Well, that's, you know, Guy and I go to campuses, a woman and a gay man, but we don't actually count as a woman and a gay man. No, no, no. We are right of center. I want to end with something with ha that has that has some hope for us. And that is I, I love the, the chapter on parenting. Thank you. About raising kids who are not cancelers, which yes. is something I attempt to do. I want my kids to be critical thinkers. I want them to be independent, as I say to college students when I go to college campuses and often get a pretty decent reception, better than I expect I'm going to get. You're very likable. Thank you. I tell, <laughs> I tell them, you know, have the courage to be the weirdo in the room. And I know it's very hard. And the reason there need to be weirdos is because ideas have to be tested. And if there's not somebody there to test them, then we're all going through the wrong door and we never know it, right? So I want my children to think like that. I want them to have the courage to be those people. And it's hopeful to me because maybe this is the sphere where I do have influence, even though obviously I speak publicly and go to college campuses. My kids are where I have a lot of sway. Yeah. And I want to raise them to be people who are both tolerant and brave, right? Mm -hmm. And are able to say things that might occasionally have the the, the chance of getting them canceled, right? So what are your, what were your tips in there for some things that the parents can do? So, you know, Coddling of the American Mind ended up being much more of a parenting book than either me or Hyde expected. And right. we wanted to extend that in Canceling of the American Mind. And, and really, like, like you said, focus not so much on, I know everyone's terrified of their kids being canceled, but step one, don't be a canceler to begin with. Yeah. We can you know, create like, fewer of those. We have less of a problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But also that's not the kind of kid you want. Like, you know, obviously you'd forgive them and, and try to teach them the right way. But but so we talk about, you know, things like think in terms of friendships, not allies. You know, Pamela Horatsky, like she who was our chief researcher on, on, on coddling, you know, we, we interviewed her a little bit for this. And she points out, you know, allies are things that you have in war and they are transactional and they exist only for a purpose. They're not a good unto itself. Right. That's not friendship. Friendship is someone who will call you out when you're a BS, will treat you like an equal, that, that it's not some weird kind of alliance kind of thing. We talk about you know, the idea of, you know, practicing the golden rule, treating people how you would prefer to be treated. I, I see a lot of that being, you know, abused in the corporate world where people show up from elite colleges expecting tremendous tolerance, understanding and sympathy for their point of view and having absolutely none for anyone else whatsoever. Right. And, and of course, I'm doing my damnedest. To, I know my boys are five and seven, but they the only time they ever see a tablet is on long car rides and they watch movies. They're not allowed to play video games on them. I'm going to work. We, we put together a cohort of other parents who share some of our values to try to have free rangier kids. We try to get mixed age play, which believe it or not helps a lot, having more interaction from people from different ages. This is but, why yeah. I got all these kids. So they can yeah. have mixed age play just together downstairs. That's, <laughs> That's what they're awesome. doing now. 
yeah, I, I should should have gone bigger, but, but five, five and seven is pretty good. But uh, but yeah, trying to keep them off social media as long as possible, but also teaching them stand up for your damn friends, man. Like even if you disagree with somebody and you can do this on the Internet, too, like when someone's coming after, you know, one of your friends, just saying it's like, listen, this person is a good person can defuse a lot or it can make you a target, too. But if there's but if there's more of you, you know, uh, courage is contagious and there are strengths in numbers. Yeah. And and the part about one of the great untruths, which is that that what is it? Bad people. No bad person has any good opinion. Right. And it's like, no, you're going to meet a lot of people that you like or dislike in different degrees over your life. And a lot of them are going to have interesting things to say and terrible things to say. And like, that's OK. So I just, was what I, you know, John Jacques Rousseau was an awful person. It doesn't mean he was wrong about everything, you know. And when it comes to childhood, there are a lot of things I actually take from him. With regards to the general well, that's a totalitarian opinion that that I reject on its face, but not because Rousseau was a terrible person. <laughs> All right, and then one last question: If there's yes. one, if there's one big idea for reforming your favorite one and most doable idea for reforming higher education, what is it? I think that the agenda for, and unfortunately, since the left isn't very receptive to it, I think it's going to be up to conservatives, is to really analyze the landscape and figure out impediments to cheaper, smaller experiments that can actually do a better job of letting employers know that this person is a badass, that they're a hard worker, that they're brilliant, that they read, that they actually do their work. And there's ways to do this, honestly. Like, I think about the, the idea of being like, Instead of paying $70,000 to Sarah Lawrence, I'm going to pay $5,000 to Steve Pinker with 10 other students, and he's going to give me a stack of books this high, and we're going to talk about it every week. Right. Like, I, I think the education that you could get could be so much better on, on, a smaller, on, on a smaller scale with some of these experiments that we need to be trying any and all of them. Yeah. And looking at the landscape at the moment in particular, traditional credentialism doesn't seem to be serving us as well as it has in the past. So no. I think there's a real people are really receptive to the idea that there could be other places to look for smart people. I love that Ricky Schlott, for instance, you hired her before she had a college degree as a state school kid. I'm always encouraging people to look in other places than Harvard and Yale. They're, they're you know, they have many merits, but it doesn't have to be everything. And then and also if it is everything, then you have conformity because most people coming out of those institutions believe the same things. Yeah. Well, and, and, I mean, I point this out about Harvard. OK, so 45 percent of white students who go to Harvard are either kids of al alumni or, or legacies, kids of professors or athletes. So not people who would necessarily get on their um, on their own steam. And the average grade at Harvard is three point nine, yeah. which is insane. It's basically like a, like like an A plus. Or an a, I don't know what that actually equals now, but I, I I graduated magna cum laude with like a 3.7, you know, right. um, back in the day. And also what I'm hearing from employers all over the country is that also Harvard kids are showing up wanting their corporation to reflect everything they believe politically. And by the way, fire that IT guy who might be a genius, but he said something, he's a little bit aspie and he said something that that, that offended me once. Right. So the, the the product is becoming less and less valuable and, and employers are actually coming to me in height saying, I don't hire from the Ivy League anymore. And I said this in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend. By the way, could you tell the world that? Because yes. that might slap them around enough to get their, get their gains in gear. But also at the same time, like, by the way, University of Indiana, you know, like, like, so like these, yeah. these big state schools that you talk about, a lot of geniuses there, you know, who aren't 
legacies at Harvard who w w will, you know, run circles around some of the, some of these kids from softer backgrounds. Well, and, yeah, and had had different life experiences that build the kind of resilience that's very helpful in these like situations. Like being a cook on Block Island before college. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me about the canceling of the American mind. I appreciate your work on this so much, and I hope people check it out. It's a, it's a nice Christmas present if you want to if you want to grab it. An for excellent that. stocking stuffer. There you go. <laughs> we we appreciate appreciate the advice. I appreciate your thinking on this, and and you're both sides of some. Uh, thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll both continue to engage in it. Yeah, check check out thefire.org. Uh, and before you send your kids to any colleges, check out the campus free speech ranking that that Fire does. It's it's very it's very rigorous. And Harvard finished dead last. Oh my goodness. Well, credentialism. There you have it. All right. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for getting hammered responsibly. This has been a Nebulous Media podcast. <laughs> <laughs>